you want to open up your copy of Scripture with me to John chapter 14, we'll be beginning this great chapter of God's Word this morning. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, we have been in this section of Scripture on the night of our Lord's betrayal and the night before His brutal crucifixion and death. We're in this unique part of John's gospel that's not found in the other gospel accounts, what many call Jesus's farewell discourse, that he's been speaking to the disciples about his coming departure, that he will indeed leave them. We saw this in the last couple weeks that where he is going, they cannot follow. And so we've seen how this has troubled and saddened the disciples. And we'll see that again this morning, that they are unsure about the future. They are unsure about what is going to happen in light of our Lord's departure. They are anxious concerning these things that are to come. And I think many of us can relate to how the disciples feel in this moment. moment. How many of us have ever felt saddened or troubled in our faith? Anxious about the future. What's going to happen What's going to come? What are, what's going to happen next? Unsure, sometimes consumed even by the unknown. What's going to happen after these things? Troubled in our very souls. We can relate to how the disciples feel. One Puritan, J.C. Ryle, said this, heart trouble is the most common thing in the world. He said it's the most common thing in the world, heart trouble. He said, no rank or class or condition is exempt from it. No bars, no bolts, no locks can keep it out. Heart trouble. He said, the journey of life is full of trouble. We can relate to this as Christians living in this world. And the world we know has many proposed remedies to this problem of heart trouble. There's many things that the world tries to tell us will cure our troubled hearts. But what we're going to see today in this passage of Holy Scripture is that our Lord comes to us, He comes to His people, and He speaks to them a word of comfort, and a word of comfort that the world cannot give, a word of comfort to His people. And he points them and us by implication to the true remedy for our troubled souls. The remedy of faith in him. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in the promise of heaven. And faith in the balm of the gospel. And so that's what we're going to look to today at God's word. So I'm going to read our passage for us. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Jesus says to the disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us to our own devices to somehow figure out salvation, if that was even possible, Lord, but you have given us this morning your holy and infallible word by which we can see and understand the way of salvation that you have made for us in the person and in the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have this morning in your word comfort for our troubled souls, a remedy for our anxiety and fear. We have the way of salvation that Christ has made. And so we come this morning, Lord, not relying on ourselves, not relying on our ability to somehow fix ourselves up and make ourselves ready for heaven, but we have the promise that Christ has done it all. He has made a way for sinners, and we come this morning hoping and praying that you will strengthen us, that we might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in him for all that we need, and this great remedy that you have made, we come trusting in that alone. We, we thank you and praise you for your grace, and we pray that you would be with us now as we gather under your word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three different things this morning as we look to John chapter 14. The first thing we're going to see in verse 1, the remedy of faith. The remedy of faith. Next, we'll look in verses 2 through 3 at the remedy of heaven. And finally, in verses 5 through 6, we'll look at the remedy of Christ. That as we've said, the disciples at this point in the upper room discourse are discouraged. They are confused. They are saddened. They are even perplexed at what is going on. Jesus has just told them, I'm going away and you can't follow me. I'm going somewhere and you can't come after me. Christ is leaving them and they cannot follow after him. And this greatly troubles them. But we see in verse 1, our Lord knowing the heart of his disciples, speaks this word of comfort to them in verse 1. He says these great words, let not your hearts be troubled. <laughs> let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus knows the heart of man. <laughs> he knows what his disciples are feeling. He knows their minds. He knows their anxious and troubled souls. He knows their downcast and despairing thoughts. And so we can say in the same way, He knows us. He knows our troubled hearts. He knows the things that plague us. 
And what a comfort this is that the same is true of all of God's children, that He knows our hearts, He knows our anxieties, He knows our troubles and our fears, and before we even speak them, He knows what is on our hearts. And so what He says to us, He says to His disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. He encourages His disciples. He even exhorts them not to be troubled, to not be overcome, to be overtaken with fear and anxiety. But what is the solution? What's the cure? What's the remedy for their trouble of heart? We see the answer in verse 1. The answer is faith. It is belief. It is trust in the promises of God. He says at the end of verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. (laughs) He points his disciples not to some worldly remedy, but to the great remedy of faith. He says, do not be troubled, rather believe. (laughs) Do not be overcome with fear, but rather trust. And we see in this phrase of our Lord that to trust in Christ is to trust in the living God. To trust in Christ is to trust in the living God. That to believe in the one who is God incarnate is to believe in God, right? These are not two separate objects of faith. It is the same. One early church father, Hilary of Portier, talks about this mystery revealed of God's triune nature. Even in this verse, it says, he says, this statement both demonstrates his unity with the divine nature while also distinguishing his person as the Son. That to believe in God is to believe in the Son. To believe in the Son is to believe in God. As one person said, faith in Christ cannot be separated from faith in God, and vice versa. Faith in God cannot be separated from faith in Christ because Christ is God. He is God incarnate. And so to believe in the Son is to believe in God. And so Jesus points His disciples to Himself as the object of their faith, believe in Me, and the remedy for their troubled and weary hearts. But if you're thinking the way that I was sort of thinking, you'll remember that a couple verses before, in chapter 13, verse 21, that our Lord Himself was troubled in His very soul. How can Jesus say to His disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled while he himself is troubled in his spirit. Is this a contradiction? A cynic might say that this appears hypocritical of our Lord. How can he say don't be troubled while he himself is troubled in his very soul? Isn't this hypocritical of Jesus? But it's in this seeming contradiction that actually points us to the very heart of the gospel and the whole reason that Christ came. Because He was troubled in His soul that we might not be troubled. 
He was crushed in spirit that we might be raised up. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief that we might have peace in our conscience. Sinclair Ferguson said it like this, because Jesus was troubled, his disciples need not be. (laughs) Because Jesus was troubled, his disciples need not be troubled. (laughs) He would suffer so they might be saved. He bore our guilt, our shame, our condemnation that we might be set free. Because he was troubled, our troubled hearts can find peace. (laughs) This is what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to do. He has come to bear our sorrows, bear our grief, bear our trouble of soul that we need not fear. And that this, brothers and sisters, is the remedy for our trouble of heart. It is the remedy for our trouble of soul. Belief and trust in God. Faith in His promises. Hope in the triune God and His plan of salvation. And we see what's so amazing about this is that Jesus points to His disciples not to some earthly remedy, not to some worldly hope, but a heavenly one. One that truly comforts their souls. And that brings us to our second point this morning. The remedy of heaven. The remedy of heaven. That our Lord here points His disciples not to some earthly home, not to some worldly city, but a heavenly one to the celestial city. And we see that in verses 2 through 3, that our Lord points His disciples to our heavenly home. The permanent house for God's children. The eternal dwelling place for the people of God. The place of eternal Sabbath rest that our Lord calls here in verse 2, His Father's house. His Father's house. This is the dwelling place of God, heaven itself. And our Lord here speaks of these heavenly realities with much knowledge about them because He Himself is God. And He says to His disciples three things in these couple verses. First, He says He is going to leave them and depart from them. He says he is going to prepare a place for them. And then thirdly, he says that he is going to return and bring them to himself. First, we see Jesus tell his disciples that he is going to again depart from them. As we've spoken about in the last couple weeks, he is going to the cross. He is going to suffer and die in their place, but he is also going to ascend into heaven. He is going to reign with the Father in His glorification, right? This is what we call the ascension and the current session of Christ. He is going to depart from the disciples bodily. But His departure is not a reason for sadness, but it's rather an occasion of joy and gratitude. Because why? Because what does Jesus say here? The second thing, that He's going to prepare a place for them. That He is going to prepare a place for them. That because of our sin, we cannot dwell with a holy God. 
right? We see this pictured all the way back in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve sin, and what's the first thing that happens? They're cast out of Eden. They're no longer able to dwell with God because of their sin. We even see this pictured in the temple. You cannot go into the holy place because of sin. This is where God dwells, and we cannot dwell with a holy God because of our sin. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I must make a way. I must make a way so that you can be with God. I must go and prepare a place for you. That is why I am leaving, to go and make a way for you to dwell with a holy God. And many people have taken this passage into very weird directions, saying that Jesus hasn't returned because he's still up there preparing a place. He's still tidying up heaven, and he hasn't got it right yet, which is, I think is a silly thing to think about. I liked what one church father said. He said, the mansions are already prepared. <laughs> this word can sometimes be translated as mansions. This word rooms here in verse 2. He says, the mansions are already prepared. Christ has made a way. That is what he did in his work on the cross. He prepared a way for sinners. That's really what he's talking about here. He's talking about, I'm going to prepare a place for you by the work that I'm going to do. So our Lord not only promises that he's going to depart, not only that he's going to prepare a place for them, but thirdly and finally, that he's going to come again. That our Lord will indeed return for his people. What a comfort this would be to these troubled disciples. That he says that I will come again and take you to myself. He will draw his people to himself. Not in some secret rapture, but in a public triumph of God over all his creation in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the great promise is what our Lord says at the end of verse 3 that where I am, you may be also. That this is the great hope of the Christian. Union, communion, fellowship with the triune God. That where He is, we may be also. First Peter puts it like this, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? For what purpose? That He might bring us to God. That He might bring us to God. Not only spiritually now, but bodily for all eternity. That we might be present with the Lord. This is the blessed hope of the believer and the heavenly remedy for our earthly despairs and troubles. And this is what our Lord points His disciples to. Look to heaven. <laughs> Look to where I am and you'll find hope for your troubled souls. But we see... <laughs> in the response of Thomas, that they're still confused. <laughs> they're still confused, but we'll see that this doesn't stop our Lord from pointing them to Himself as the only remedy for their troubled souls. And that brings us to our third and final point, the remedy of Christ. That we see in verse 5, Thomas is confused. <laughs> He's totally confused. You're going to prepare a place for us. Thomas is focused on earthly things. He's focused on worldly realities. He thinks Jesus here is speaking about an earthly house, a place down the street. We see that in his question. He says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. <laughs> 
Where are you going? Are you going to go down the street? Are you going to some place in Jerusalem? Where are you going? How are we going to get where you are, Lord, if you do not show us the way? And Jesus says to him, I'm the way. (laughs) I am the way. We see in these great words of our Lord in verse 6, the sixth I am statement in John's gospel when Jesus tells to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's almost as if he's saying, Thomas, don't you see? (laughs) It's not some road you need to walk down. I'm the way. I am the way. I am the way to heaven. I am the way to glory. I am the way to eternal, everlasting life. I am the way. Not merely as an example saying, look to me and follow after what I do. Not some prophet telling you, the way is over there. But I'm the way. I am the way. I am the way the Father has appointed to reconcile sinners to Himself. I am the way of all the blessings of the covenant of grace coming to the people of God. I am the way into the very church of God. What does He say in John 10? I'm the gate. I'm the door of the sheepfold. It is only by faith in Me that people might enter. I am the way. And he says, I am the truth. I am truth incarnate. (laughs) I am not just the embodiment of what truth is because I only speak the truth, but in my very nature, I am truth because I am the true and living God. I love what 1 John 5, verse 20 says. John later in his epistle says, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we might know Him who is true. He is the true God. (laughs) That in a world that says there is no truth, Jesus says, I'm the truth. The answer to Pontius Pilate who says, what is truth? Jesus says, I'm the truth. And to many in our world that wrestle with this question of what is true, Jesus says, I am the truth, the full and final revelation of God and His plan of salvation. I am the truth. But He also says, I am the life. I am the author and the giver of life. Not only natural life that we have by nature of creation, by which all people receive life, but new creation life that He has given by His Spirit. Eternal, everlasting life that only comes through Christ. He's not only the sustainer and source of life, but the giver of eternal life and salvation. The fountain. What's He say to the woman of well? The fountain of living water that does not run dry that He has conquered death and He has the keys of death and Hades. He is the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. But then He says these profound words, and no one comes to the Father except through Me. 
No one comes to the Father except through me, through faith in me, through faith in my person and in my work. He is the only and exclusive way of salvation, the only and exclusive way to the Father. There is no coming to God apart from Christ. There is no coming to salvation apart from His redeeming work. And so this naturally excludes all other ways of salvation. It excludes salvation by obedience to the covenant of works broken by Adam. It excludes obedience to the law of God or our good works. It excludes being born into the right family or white-knuckling ourselves into some sort of view of justifying ourselves before a holy God. Our good deeds somehow outweighing our bad. No, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the only way. I am the one mediator between God and man, the exclusive Savior of sinners. And we see this beautiful language that our Lord uses of the triune nature of our salvation. Notice He doesn't just say, come to me, but He says, that by coming to Him, by coming to Him is coming to the Father. That coming to the Father through the work of the Son, by the power of the Spirit, this is our salvation. It is a triune work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what God has done for us. That through the work of Christ and by the power of the Spirit, we come into fellowship and union with Him. And so as we think about this passage and how to apply it to our lives, we need to be honest with ourselves as we try to think about what does this mean for us. That I think if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize and see that there's much trouble in our hearts. That as people that live in this world, there is much that causes us fear and trouble. Maybe it's externally in a world that seems like it's gone crazy, where everything around us seems to be falling apart. We are troubled by the rampant unbelief in the world, weighed down by the erosion of morality all around us. A world that has rejected God, rejected His image to the detriment of their own souls. This should trouble us as believers. We feel the weight of this. We feel this daily. Maybe it's not only externally, but maybe it's internally. Maybe it's the own own trials and troubles that we face. Maybe we're troubled by our own sin or some particular suffering that we're going through in this season. We're weighed down by sickness, by death, by anxiety, by fear. Maybe it's something as simple as everyday things like stress at ability to pay for bills and money. Maybe it's discouragement over a difficult child or one of our family members that is causing us pain. Maybe it's something bigger than that. Maybe it's falling into temptation in a grievous way. Maybe it is fear of persecution for our faith in our family or in our jobs. We are weighed down and we are troubled in our very souls And the Lord comes to us today and He says these words of comfort. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. I am with you. 
that because of what Christ did on the cross, preparing a place for us, He's made a way. He's made a way, and we can actually have peace this morning. We can actually have true, lasting peace with God. What does Jesus say? In the same chapter, a couple verses later, He says to the disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Not as the world gives. That the world offers us temporary, superficial peace. Right? Temporary, superficial peace. Quick fixes that pass away. Worldly pleasures that do not last. But the peace that our Lord gives to us is eternal. It is a lasting peace that cannot be taken away. It is a peace that the world cannot offer, a peace that the world cannot give, because it is peace with God. (laughs) What does Paul say in Romans chapter 5, verse 1? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. (laughs) That there's this amazing thing that happens when we've been reconciled to God by faith, we have peace. We have peace with God, our Creator, and we have peace in our souls. We have peace because of what Christ has done. And this peace and comfort of Christ fixes our eyes on Him as we go through these troubles and trials of our life. But the second thing we need to see this morning is that Christ is really the only way for lost sinners. (laughs) He's the only way for lost sinners, that the Scripture is clear, all have sinned, all are guilty before a holy God, and as we see in our passage today, Christ is the only way. Christ is the only way of salvation. That no amount of self-improvement, no amount of self-help, moral reform, motivational speaking can save us. (laughs) None of it can save us from our sins. We see very clearly Christ saying that He is indeed the only way. We must come to Him for truth. We must come to Him for life. We must humble ourselves before our Savior. And every other religion, every other worldview says, you can do it. (laughs) Just try harder. Just double your effort and you can be saved. But the Christian faith says, you cannot. You cannot save yourselves. You cannot make a way. Christ is the way. He's the only exclusive way. But for those who know how sinful and messed up they are, this is actually a great comfort. This exclusivity of the Christian faith is actually really good news. Because if we have Christ, if we have union with Him, then we have everything we need because He is the way, the truth, and the life. We have forgiveness of sins. We have our consciences cleansed. We have our bodies washed with pure water. We have peace with the Holy God. We have justification by faith alone. We have the hope of heaven held out for us. We have everything we need in Christ and in union with Him. And this is all because of Christ and what He has done. And this is all ours because we are united to Him 
And this is what Christ has done for sinners like us. But the third and final thing we need to see this morning, and the third and final thing that we really need, is we need to long to be where Christ is. We need to long to be where Christ is. If we can kind of rephrase our Lord's words here, that where Christ is, we may be also. That where Christ is, we may be also. That this means longing for the glory of heaven. Longing for, as some of the older writers would say, Emmanuel's land. (laughs) Longing for the glory of heaven. Longing to dwell with God in the place that Christ has prepared for us. That this is our hope, brothers and sisters. It is the land of eternal rest where there's no sin, there's no death, there's no mourning, the new heavens and the new earth, as John will call in the book of Revelation, where God will dwell with us forever in perfect union, in perfect communion, in perfect fellowship with the triune God, longing to be where Christ is present. Because He is our life, we want to be where He is. But the question that we should ask this morning is what does that mean for us now? What does that mean for us between the two advents of Christ? What does that mean for us after the cross and before the coming of Christ? Where is Christ present now? If he is in heaven, no longer bodily present with his church, is he absent from us? Has he abandoned us? Has he left us to ourselves? And the answer that the catechism gives is no. (laughs) Because Christ is truly God and truly man, even though according to his humanity, he is not now on earth, according to his divinity, he is not absent from us for a moment. (laughs) He is not absent from us for a moment. This is the promised presence of Christ with his people. This is the Spirit of Christ ministering to his church till the end of the age. Christ dwelling with his church even now. And this is what you and I experience this side of heaven. That's what's so amazing about this passage is that longing to be where Christ is is not only a future hope for the Christian but a present reality. It's not only a future hope for the Christian, but it is a present reality. That because of Christ's work on the cross, God is pleased to dwell with His people even now by the Spirit. He is pleased to dwell with His people now by the Spirit. If we just go a couple verses over, in John chapter 14, verse 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Our dwelling place. The same word that is used in our passage. This is the already not yet reality of God dwelling with his people even now, this side of heaven. And this is true for us as a church. This is true for us as believers that Christ dwells with us, especially as we gather together each and every Lord's Day. Martin Luther famously said, I want to be where Christ is present. 
And somebody said, where is that? And he said, in word and sacrament. In word and in baptism and the Lord's Supper, Christ has promised to be present with his people. And this is the great hope we have this morning, brothers and sisters, that above all of our earthly trouble, above all of our suffering, above all our anxieties, and even in the face of persecution, we can look to the realities of heaven. And I think this is best exemplified in one of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom. In the year 400, he was threatened by a Roman empress for preaching the gospel, and she threatened him with banishment. And he famously said this, You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. She said, but I will kill you. And he said, no, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. She said, but I will take away your treasure. And he said, no, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven, and there my heart is also. She said, but I will drive you away from your friends, and you will have no one left. And he said, no, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. <laughs> this is the heavenly mindedness that we should have, brothers and sisters, as we face these troubles of our life. We will go through suffering. We will go through trouble of heart. We will go through fears and anxieties. But may we long for heaven. May we long for our eternal rest. May we long to be where Christ is president. Not president. (laughs) He is president in heaven, right? May we long to be where Christ is present in word and sacrament this side of heaven and in the eternal dwelling place with us forever in the new heavens and new earth that by faith now we can look there. May we look to where Christ is For he is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, and the only one that is able to give rest to weary sinners. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises of the gospel, for the promise of Christ. That by belief in him, we might have hope this morning. We might have a remedy for our weary souls that we can look to the promises of your word and we have an anchor that pierces even heaven itself where no moth can destroy, no thieves can break in and steal. We have an eternal lasting hope. And even though this world can persecute us and even seek to destroy us, it cannot ultimately harm us because we have an eternal unshakable hope. And so as we come this morning to to your supper, as we come to be where you are present, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us by your gospel, strengthen our faith this morning, that we might come to rest in your promises. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ, and we pray all these things in his name. Amen.